0: John chapter 19. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me there. It'll be our focal text for this morning. John chapter 19. We're in John chapter 19 because about a month ago, we were in John chapter 18. We're in John chapter 18 because two years ago, we were in John chapter 1, right? So you get the picture. Kind of what we do here. Um, Goodness, what... Nothing makes that old heart come alive like singing the glories of the gospel. What else do you want? What other truth could be better to hear this morning than that your sin has been nailed to the cross and you bear it no more? That's pretty much the sermon for today. I mean, we could take up an offering and go home, but then we don't even take up an offering. We could just go home, right? John chapter 19. It's page 906 if you're using one of those Black Pew Bibles. We're starting in um, kind of the the end of the story. Well, not the end of the story because certainly the resurrection would be the end of the story. So we're three quarters of the way into the story. But Jesus has just breathed his last. He's just, as John said, he has bowed his head and he's given up his spirit and he is now, He has now died. And then in verse number 31, it says that since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away so that the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. Verse number 36, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones would be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews, he asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen cloths. With the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been, no one yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Let's pray. Father in heaven, our hearts want to leap ahead to the next part of the story. I think and I hope that every person hearing this text of scripture, this slice of scripture knows the context. The context is this, that you did not stay there, that you did not stay dead. That death could not hold you. That when you cried out, it is finished what was finished was the price the full payment for our sin had been paid on the cross and by the power that is you God the living God you were resurrected back unto life and you walked just a few short hours just three short days one full day and another piece of a day you walk out of that tomb and so that we when we pray when we preach and when we proclaim When we believe upon you, we're not believing in some person that's laying in a grave. But we are praying to a resurrected King who is making all things new, who is alive and well and sitting and reigning and ruling and interceding and poised to return again. We pray unto you, Jesus, with real power. What you experience, your resurrection. Would you resurrection? Will you resurrect our hearts? Some of us, our hearts are alive in you, but they are dead because of numbness. We've become dead to truths like this because we've heard it a hundred times. And this morning, may we be alive to your resurrection and our resurrection, and may we worship you may we long to live lives that glorify you. And there are some in this room to whom you have yet to resurrect from the grave, the grave of the dominion of sin. And Lord, I pray for them that you, by your power, you would resurrect them. You would open their eyes. You'd bring life to the dead so that they too may join us together in worshiping you. This all rolls up into one thing, worship to you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You could be seated. I don't know if maybe you've thought about this or not, but nowhere in scripture are we commanded to remember Jesus's birth. I mean, we remember Jesus's birth. We remember it through Christmas. We remember it through telling the story, reading the scriptures, coming together. We remember it by giving gifts as a reminder that Jesus was the greatest gift to ever be given. So there's nothing wrong with Uh, uh, celebrating Christmas. There's nothing wrong with remembering Jesus's birth, but we're never commanded to remember it. But we are commanded to do this, to remember Jesus's death. And we here at the Point Community Church, we remember Jesus's death every time we gather together on a Sunday morning. We remember Jesus's death by the songs that we sing. We remember Jesus's death by the words that we'll say from this pulpit, the way that we preach is to preach Christ and him crucified and him resurrected. And then we will most assuredly, we will remember Jesus's death and the way that he's prescribed for us to remember it in the taking of the Lord's Supper. On some special Sundays, we get to remember Jesus's death again in the second ordinance, which is the ordinance of baptism. That both in the ordinances that Jesus has given to his church, the Lord's Supper and in baptism, they both serve as a reminder a way for us, real practical means for us to remember Jesus's death. That this text of scripture should permeate everything that we say and everything that we do really as a church. Like whenever you get to the lowest common denominator of why are we doing that? It is to proclaim Jesus's death and Jesus's resurrection. And today, as we think about the text of scripture that tells us this, There's something that I want you to remember. I want you to know. And it's this one thing, that Jesus's death is your death. Let me say that again. Jesus's death is your death to sin. That this morning, as we think about and we read about Jesus's death, I don't want you to just leave it in in an event that occurred 2,000 years ago, although it did occur 2,000 years ago. I don't want you just to leave it as a historical event in the past. I don't want you just to leave it even as a theological concept that forms and shapes and gives life to most of, if not all of our theology. I want you to think about it in terms of this, as a present spiritual reality that is in your life. It's not just something on the pages of scripture, but it should be a present spiritual reality that empowers and gives shape and gives life to the way that you will spend out this rest of this week, no matter what you may do, no matter if you're a mechanic or a teacher or a computer genius, or if you're retired, or if you're a mom, or if you're a sewer worker like I was, this right here, this spiritual reality gives life to your life and empowers your life. It is the most clarifying truth about your life. It's even more clarifying than your sin. And that's where we're going. That's where we're heading, that all of us can highlight sin that is a reality in our lives. It's things that we do and, and inclinations of our heart and frustrations of our souls. And we may think that's our true selves and that is not your true self. Your true self, it's being determined about what has happened on a cross 2,000 years ago and in a tomb 2,000 years ago. And as John tells, and we'll get down to the text, as John is giving us his account, there's one main point that John wants to make. He, he's giving us numbers of details in his account, but one truth that he's underscoring in these details, and it is this, that undoubtedly Jesus is dead. That's what John wants, us, wants you to know that Jesus is dead, that when Jesus said it is finished and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit, Jesus died, he died in his body and he died in his flesh. There's a popular um, theory on the other side to try to disprove the resurrection. It's called the swoon theory. What the swoon theory said was that Jesus didn't die on the cross, that Jesus just passed out on the cross. He just entered into a, a, a comatose state, if you will, on the cross. And then they take him down from the cross. Uh, they didn't have uh, doctors. They didn't have stethoscopes. They didn't have EKGs. There wasn't a way for them to really know if there's brain waves happening inside of him or if his heart is just a faint heartbeat. They didn't have any of those things. And so they take Jesus down off the cross and they lay him in the tomb and he lays there for a couple of days. And then he all of a sudden he comes to. You know, we've all kind of heard stories, right? Horror stories about events like that, and that's what happened to Jesus in the coolness of that tomb. And after a couple of days of his body convalescing, if you will, or healing, if you will, he all of a sudden he comes to, and then he, you know, like you would do, he claws his way out of the tomb. And that is le- that is not left for us in this ima- in our imagination. There's no room for that as you read this account that John wants to leave no room for the swoon theory. And in fact, what he does in his account is he gives us three proofs of Jesus's death. That's where we're gonna go for the first half of the sermon. Three proofs of Jesus's death. The first one is found starting in verse number 31. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Under normal circumstances, um, it would be customary for them to just leave criminals crucified, hanging on the crosses for a, for a number of days. They would just leave them out there to the elements, maybe to the vultures, whatever, but they would leave them there, again, as a reminder to other criminals, to other people who may think about breaking crime or doing whatever to remember, this is what happens to you. This is what happens to your body. And so that would have been normative. But since it was... Uh, a, a special holiday, since it was Passover, since Sabbath was just a few short um, hours away on that Saturday would have been Sabbath. Since it was all, uh, the Sabbath of the Passover, the Jews go to Pilate and they say, Pilate, don't just leave the bodies of these three criminals out there. But if you would go ahead and speed and quicken their death so that they may die and they may be removed from the crosses and may, their bodies may be disposed of. Again, what would have been customary to that time would have been to take the bodies of criminals and throw them on the trash heap outside of the city of Jerusalem, a trash heap called Gehenna. Now, that's why it's important that Joseph shows up and says, don't throw Jesus's body on a trash heap. Let me have it and I'll put it in a tomb. I'll properly bury it. But the other two criminals, it's kind of left, you know, not to our imagination, but for us to guess that their bodies were probably thrown onto the trash heap. It says what happens is, is as the... Um, In verse number, let's see, in verse number 33, what happens is, is as the as the guards come to try to break the legs in verse number three, but when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. Now, the importance of breaking legs is on the cross, what's happening is, is on the cross, most people die on the cross from asphyxiation. They can't get their breath. The only way for them to get their breath is to push with their feet on their, on the nails that has been driven through their feet to push up to catch breath. And then as they exhale, they're slowly letting themselves hang on their wrists. So breaking their legs would prevent them from pushing up, which would speed their death. And so that's what the Jews have asked. Pilate, speed up their death. So whenever the guards come, They notice that two, the two criminals on either side of Jesus, they're still alive. So they break their legs. We don't know exactly how, maybe with a large hammer or whatever. They break their legs. But when they come to Jesus, the guards say this, they already saw that Jesus was dead. Therefore, they did not break his legs. That listen, these soldiers, and that's the first proof. The first proof of Jesus's death is this, the testimony of the soldiers. These soldiers would have not they would have they would not have dared to disobey Pilate's orders unless they were absolutely certain that Jesus was actually dead and they say Jesus was dead on the cross. That's what they say. They we didn't break his legs because he's already dead. Second proof in verse number 34 that in order to ensure that Jesus was dead they plunge a spear into his side but one of the soldiers pierced his side with the spear and at once there came out blood and water now all kinds of symbolism has been uh, ascribed to this like the blood and the water what does that mean some people say oh, that represents the lord's supper in the blood and the water of baptism and like maybe just maybe but well, we really don't know that nobody else really picks up with it on that First John, John again kind of picks up on that, but he really doesn't tell us what the meaning is. Here's what I think the meaning of it is, is Jesus is dead. That's the meaning. The meaning is this, Jesus is dead. And to ensure that he is dead, a spear is plunged into his side. Now this fulfills, as John even says here, this fulfills all sorts of prophecies. It fulfills prophecy in Exodus 12 and Numbers 9 and Psalm 34 verse 20 and Zechariah 12, 10. But the primary point isn't just simply the fulfillment of scripture. The primary point that John is making is Jesus is dead. Remember, this isn't some kind of minor puncture wound with the spear going into Jesus' side. This is a gaping hole that is opened up that's large enough for Thomas to stick his hand in. And that's what John will say. When Jesus is resurrected, Jesus will show this, this very wound to doubting Thomas, and he will say, touch it. And scripture says, and Thomas sticks his hand in it. Not, he he touched it with a finger. This is a gaping hole that is plunged into Jesus's side. And as a sign of his death, blood and water comes through. That's the second point. And then John says this in verse number 35. He wants us to make sure that we understand that Jesus is dead, and he wants to give us the purpose. Why? He's saying, why am I saying this over and over and over again? It's because of this. It's so that you may believe. The purpose of his book, the purpose of his account, the purpose of the story, the purpose of all of this is so that you and I, the readers, we might believe and we might believe that Jesus is really dead, that Jesus is not swooning, he's not passing out, but Jesus is really dead. And then we have a third proof. Jump with down with me, if you would, to verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. And so John has already told us that the Jews have kind of ratcheted up the pressure on anyone who would claim to follow Jesus and you could be excommunicated out of the synagogue. You could, so there's huge, uh, um, you know, problems with this in society for people who say that, Hey, I believe in Jesus. But now Joseph has some newfound boldness. I mean, a lot has occurred. The earth has shook. The the sun has been blotted out. The the, the curtain in the temple has been torn. A lot's happened. And now Joseph really, I think it's come to say, hey, look, it's worth me staking my life on. And Joseph shows up. Joseph takes the body, gets Nicodemus. He's the one that uh, is the first episode of Nick at Night. Come on, come with me, right? Come with me, right? Because he comes to Jesus, Nick, at night. And he's the one that Jesus says, you must be born again. That was in John chapter three. My grandfather in heaven is like, get him, boy, get him. Now, he doesn't know what's going on. I'm joking. He's, he doesn't know what's going on, but he would be. Um, that's who comes to get Jesus and take Jesus's body. They bring uh, a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Think about that. So they take the body of Jesus, they bind bind it up into linen cloths with the spices and they bury it according to the custom of the Jews. And this is the final proof of Jesus's death. Proof number three is you have two men who are preparing the body of Jesus for burial. The Jews didn't embalm the dead. They would have washed the body of Jesus. They would have applied the spices, a 75 pound, a mixture of myrrh and aloe. They would have, rubbed it they would have smeared it all over Jesus's body they would have taken then Jesus's body and taken linen cloth and wrapped like almost like you would see like a, a kind of like a mummy although they didn't mummify the body they would have wrapped it in this linen and then they would have laid Jesus's body in a garden tomb the third proof is of Jesus je- death is this is don't you think if Jesus would have still been alive these other these men and probably ladies that joined with them would have been able to tell? Like, don't you think they would have been able if he had a small, faint breath? Don't you think they would have seen his chest move? They would have seen something? Now, again, I know some people may say, you know, those on the other side, they may say, but yeah, but these men aren't doctors. Again, no EKGs, no stethoscopes, none of those things. How would they have known? I, I understand that, but here's something that sets them apart different from us. Neither were there doc, like formal doctors, as we understand them, EKGs, none of those things, but neither were there hospitals or nursing home, or hospice wards, that most people died in their homes. So these, as adult men, they would have been accustomed to seeing and being around a dead body. Like some of you have been accustomed to that. You've seen that because of your profession. You've encountered that. I have not, right? We didn't, I just, I haven't. I mean, in the funeral home after embalmment, yes, but pre that, no. And these men would have seen that. They would have experienced that. These women would have experienced that. This probably wasn't the first time that the women who were probably enlisted, it wasn't the first time they had encountered a, a dead body in doing this. That They would have, unlike us, they would have been able to recognize the signs, of, uh, the signs of life. And yet they don't see any of that. They believe that Jesus is dead. It is no doubt that Jesus is dead. And here's why this is so important in John's telling. And it's so important that I would spend 20 minutes going over it. It's simply this, that if Jesus was not dead, then his resurrection is untrue. And you and I are still dead in our sins. That's why it's so important that if Jesus was not physically bodily dead on the cross and laid dead, D-E-A-D, dead in the tomb, then his Resurrection is not true and you and I are still dead in our trespasses and our sins and there is no hope of salvation and you and I can forget the chance that our sins are forgiven. We can forget that. Like, I don't know, like as you encounter people who are atheistic and they think about us as Christians and sometimes they can be filled with an array of emotions. Maybe they can feel antagonistic towards us as Christians, but you know what they should feel towards us? Pity. Pity. That's what they should feel. Anyone who believes that Jesus was not dead and bodily raised, what they should feel to those of us who believe it with all of our being, they should feel a sense of sympathy and pity for us because we are banking everything on the truth that Jesus died on a cross some 2000 years ago, laid in a tomb and death could not hold him. The grave could not keep him and he has been resurrected from the dead. If Jesus was not dead and his resurrection is, then his resurrection is untrue. And what that means for you and I is that you and I, we are dead in our trespasses and our sins. It's the untruth of what I said, the main point of the sermon is. (laughs) What I said was, what does Jesus's death mean? Well, Jesus's death is our death it's in G- as Jesus died, we died to sin. What it means then is Jesus did not die, then you and I are still alive and we're alive to our sin. But that's the application. That is why Jesus is dying. That's why death on the cross is so important. It is so important because it is the penalty for our sin. The consequence that was levied in the garden all the way back in the very first pages of the Bible, all the way back in creation. That when God created by his own design and by his own plan and by his own powerful word as he created this earth and he placed His His the pinnacle of his creation, mankind, the one that he breathed life into as he placed Adam and Eve in the garden, he gave them but one law. And we talk about this, like if there was just one, you think you could keep it, right? I mean, think about how many laws and rules that you and I have, even in scripture, how to live. You think if there was one, we'd be like, hey, we got this one, but they couldn't get one right? They couldn't keep that one. And what God had said when he established the law was, you can eat from every tree in the garden except for this one, this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat of it for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And they ate and they died and we have been dying ever since. They disobey God, they ate, and death enters into God's beautiful design and his creation and Jesus shows up and Jesus never breaks a single law or command of God, not in word, not in deed, not in thought, not in inclination, not in any way. Jesus lives the perfect life that you and I could never live and then he dies on a cross, bearing the penalty for our sin, for our sin, every believer's sin is accredited to Jesus and Jesus stands in our place, enduring our penalty so that you and I can stand in his place that he creates. That's important. Jesus stands in our place bearing our penalty, the penalty of death, the penalty of God's just punishment for sin, bearing the penalty of the wrath of God on him so that you and I can stand in his place. There's an old preacher story. Now, you know what preacher stories are? Um, Outside of the church, they'd be called lies. But there's an old preacher story. Am I right, Sean? I'm right. There's an old preacher story. I don't know, it may be true. It may be true somewhere. Um, some of you that haunt, maybe you can imagine this. Maybe you'd say, there's no way this happened, but here's the preacher story as it was told to me, Okay. Two guys are out hunting out in uh, out in the Midwest somewhere. I don't know what they're hunting, but they're out there. They're they're hunting, and while they're hunting, they notice off in the horizon they know some some smoke billowing up, and they don't think much about the smoke, but they just take a mental note of the smoke, and they go on and they're they're hunting. They're looking for whatever it is. They're killing elk or bison or moose or whatever. The moose aren't there, but you, you, you're following me, right? I'm, I hope I'm not disqualifying myself, but they as a man, not as a preacher, but they're. <laughs> They're hunting, and they notice the smoke. They take mental note of it, and then as the day proceeds, they notice that, wait a minute, the smoke seems like it's intensifying, and not only is it intensifying, it's getting closer, and then they finally, they suddenly realize that the smoke is coming from a raging forest fire, and this raging forest fire is going to get to them quicker than they can get to their SUV, right? Cause that's what menly, manly men drive is Mazda's SUVs quicker than they can get to their truck. And so they're fearful for their lives as they should be, right? They're standing there fearful. But then one of the hunters says, hold on a second. And he reaches down into his backpack and he pulls out a pack of matches from his backpack and he takes the matches and they're out in this field and there's all this dry grass all around him. And he takes his matches and he strikes a match and then he Throws it into the dry grass. And he says, help me, watch me. Let's keep the, let's keep the fire low. But what we want to do is we want to spread the fire out. And what they do is they create a, an already burned place in this field, in the middle of this field. They create this already burned place all around them so that when the fire, the forest fire comes to them, There's an already burned place for them to stand in and the fire just simply burns around them and they're protected, staying safe as long as they stay in the already burned place. That's what Jesus has done. Jesus on the cross endures God's wrath and Jesus on the cross endures an already burned place for you and I to stand in. And that's what we do by faith. That's what faith means is you believe in Jesus, the one who is already by his death, not by your good works, not by you trying harder, not by you doing religious performance, not by any of those things, but simply because of his grace and you by faith, you believe in Jesus and his perfect work and you are placed in that already burned place so that the wrath of God and the penalty for sin burns all around you. That's what Jesus's cross means. Jesus's death is our death because Jesus is dying in death to the penalty of our sin. But let's take it one step further. Jesus's death is our death to sin. It's our death to our penalty for our sin, our sin, the sins that you and I commit. But not just is it not just does it um, lead us to life away from the penalty of sin, but sin is described in the Bible also, not just as a penalty, but sin is described in the Bible as a power. Not just as a penalty, but also as a power. It just doesn't carry a penalty, but sin is a power working in us. Like, why is it so easy for you to commit sin? And just you, not me, right? Right? It's hard for me to commit sin. No, it's easy for me to commit sin. Why is it so easy for you and I to commit sin? The reason is, is because sin is a power at work inside of you. It shows up in your desires. It shows up as in fleshly, worldly desires. It shows up as a, as a real strength, as a, as a real power. And what James says is that's the problem. The problem isn't that you're just tempted to sin. The problem is inside of you that there's a power inside of you that draws you to sin. It's like some of you will be uh, turkey hunting soon, right? Why, why is it so, and I know it's not, but why is it easier to kill a turkey? Because you go in there and you scratch a stone or you make a sound with your mouth or you blow on an instrument. You know, my, my, my daughter, Safira, right now, she's learning how to make a turkey sound. That's what she does. That's a turkey, dad. I'm like, that's a turkey, girl. You know, you got to go with your Uncle Bill turkey hunt, put you in a, in a blind somewhere and let you go. But that's what you do that. And that turkey hears that. And it makes that turkey go berserk on the inside. You know, either there's another male here and I got to go flog it, or there's a female here and i something else, right? There's something inside that turkey that makes it perk up. It makes it go come alive to the sound that it hears. The same way when we fish and we throw that lure and the bass inside of it goes, that looks delicious. I'm gonna pounce on that, you know, that thing. And the same thing is true for you. The temptation looks so beautiful and it sounds so beautiful because inside of you, there is a flawed desire, the desire of sin in you. You're broken. That's the truth of scripture. And it makes a desire, a power comes alive but what we find in Jesus's death is not just does Jesus's death pay the penalty for our sin, but Jesus's death is the power. In Jesus's death, the power of sin finds a weakening force. Not just is it a penalty, but in the death of Christ, the death of Christ in that work, in that act, the power of sin finds a weakening force. You take your Bibles out, if you will. And I I think you'll want to see this in your Bible. Not because I would ever make anything up, but I think it's just important for you to see it. So if you've got a Bible, maybe grab those few Bibles. And let's look at one other text of scripture this morning. At least one other, but we'll look at this one for a few minutes. Romans, the sixth chapter. Now here's what Paul has just said in Romans, especially right before the sixth chapter. What Paul has said, if I could summarize it, I could say it like this. Paul has just said that we cannot out sin the grace of God. That because Jesus has paid the penalty for all of our sin, all of us who used to be an Adam, who are now in Christ, all of us in Christ, Jesus has now paid the penalty of our sin. Because of that, you and I, we cannot out the grace of God. That by faith that you and I, we tap into an endless supply of God's grace. That for every sin that we commit in the past, in the present, in the future, every sin that we commit, it is met with God's grace. And Paul anticipates the question. The question is gonna come by the legalists that are gonna say, wait a minute, you can't say that, Paul. Wait a minute, Paul, you can't preach that. Wait a minute, Paul, you can't mean that. Because if that's true, all of our sin, is met with God's grace, then why wouldn't you just sin more and get more grace? And then what power do you, why, why is there a desire for you to stop sinning why don't you just continue in sin and keep, and keep sinning and keep sinning and keep sinning and saying, Hey, no, it's no big deal. I believe in Jesus. I'm in Jesus. And every one of these, every one of my sins is met with grace. And here's what Paul says. You can't do that because when Jesus died, you died. That believer, you have been, listen to me, believer, you have been mystically. That doesn't mean magically. That means it's a mystery. We don't understand how it works, but you have been mystically and spiritually and vitally united to Christ in the same way that in John 15, a branch is united to a vine, in the same way that Paul talks about, in the same way that a, that a head is united to its body, in the same way as Peter says that, that bricks are laid upon a foundation, united to a foundation, in the same way you and I have been united to Christ and not just united to Christ in some theological sense, but united to Christ so that Christ's death is your death and Christ's new life, is now your life. Christ's death is your life, is your death, and his subsequent resurrection is your resurrection. And that is what Paul is laying out in Romans chapter six. Look at verse number one. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. I love that. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? The first thing I want you to notice is, look, it's your union with Jesus's death that makes living in sin impossible. Not that it makes sinning impossible. That's not what he says. But living in sin. There's a difference between living in sin and sinning that one day you will stop sinning. Not a glorious thought. There's coming a day when you will stop sinning. It will happen about a nanosecond after you stop breathing. You will stop breathing. And then you'll stop sinning. Or you'll hear a sound and you'll go, what was that sound? It sounded like a trumpet. And then you'll stop sinning, right? Jesus comes back. That's the two ways that you will stop sinning. But we as Christians, because of the powerful work of Jesus, because Jesus's death is our death, you and I do not have to continue in sin to live in to live in sin, and it really shows up in our attitude. That's what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about is, is living in sin not, and not repenting of sin, living with the attitude that sin is no big deal. Hey, I sin, you sin, we all sin, what's the big deal? And that's not the attitude of the Christian when it comes to sin. Our attitude towards sinful actions or sinful inclinations or sinful desires or sinful words that we may speak or sinful thoughts that we may think, our attitude towards sin should be that we hate it, we loathe it, we repent of it, we turn from it, and we endeavor with all of us in us to live a new life of obedience. So just as a side note, let me ask you, what's your, what's your attitude toward your sin? Not toward my sin, but toward your sin. What's your current heart state of affair when it comes to your sin? When you think about your sin, the way that you fly off the handle at your kids, that's me, right? The thoughts that you think, the bitterness that creeps in your heart, the jealousy you feel every time you get on social media, the covetousness that rises up in your heart, the lust, That's in your heart and in your mind. You see something or look for something. The greed that is in you. Your lack of gratitude. Your whatever else that may be in your life. What is the current state, temperature, climate of your heart toward that thing? Do you grieve it? Do you hate it? Do you long to be released from it? Well, let me say this, that grief and sadness is good. The grief and sadness towards our sin is good, but listen, that's not what's promised in this text. What's promised in this text is a power that will enable you to conquer your sin. Doesn't that sound good? What's promised is death to sin, a crucifixion of sin. That's what Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ Jesus is no longer the I that lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. The life that I now live, I live by faith in the son of God who has loved me. That's what Paul's saying. I have in the past, I've been crucified with Christ Jesus. That what Paul is promising here is a slow, habitual weakening of sin in your life. And sin is what wrecks everything. Good grief, I There was a time whenever uh, my main vocation, as I've already said, was working in the underground utilities, primarily in the the sewers. And I would come home at night with mud and poo and toilet paper. Gosh, one time my brother talked me into, we came to a, 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 there was a sewer line that was clogged. My older brother, John, he was like, I don't think it's really clogged with like sewage, Andy. I think it's clogged with something else. Like I should have known then, right? Like what else is it gonna be clogged with? It's a sewer pipe. And my brother goes, hey, I think if you took this, this apparatus that we had fixed up and made it like a, it was like a umbrella thing. And we cut out a plastic. I think if we could just put enough air behind it, right? Then I think what's gonna happen is I think it would just blow free. And so we plug it up even more and then put a ton of air behind it. I'm down inside a manhole, like nobody's OSHA, right? Let me think, this is a long time ago, right? This is a preacher story. I'm down inside of this thing and I'm blowing this air and I can hear like in the background, this, the, like I can feel the pipe vibrating. And like you put enough air behind something, something's gonna give, right? And something gave and it just blew back all over me. Just, I mean, it looked like a movie and I come climbing out of that. Right? I come climbing out of that manhole, just, it was sewer, bud. I don't know what you thought it was, but wasn't it. And I come home in the evening's Covered in it. And now my vocations changed. Now I deal with sin. My own sin and your sin and your loved one's sin. And sometimes I come home with it all over me. Heartbroken over sin. I just see it. I see what it does. I see what it does to families. It starts off so innocent and small and how it festers and grows. And As James says, it produces death. Not just physical death, but death to relationships and death to family and death to marriages and death to friendships and death to jobs and death in you. I see it and I deal with it and I feel it. It's been one of those weeks. Sin wrecks everything. And on the cross of Christ, he's dealing with sin. He's dealing with the penalty of sin. He's dealing with the power of sin, the power of sin that is in work in you. And this text of scripture is so beautiful. It tells us here that we can live in a way that we get victory over our sin. Like here, let me give you some good news. Maybe, maybe you need to hear some here. So listen, listen, by, by the power of Jesus' crucifixion and Jesus' resurrection, you do not have to let sinful worry rob you of your peace. Isn't that good news. You don't have to let sinful lust overcome you and leads you to look at pornography or have an affair or whatever else it may be that sinful lust leads you to do. I'm talking about sexual lust there. You don't have to let sinful greed steal your contentment. You can be content with what you have. In fact, you can even look around what you got and go like, "Golly, I got it so good!" Right? Thank you, Lord. You don't have to let simple bitterness corrupt you. Is it bitterness a funny sin? I think I heard it say, it's a little cliche, but in bitterness, you drink the poison and hope the other person dies. That's what bitterness is. You eat something bitter and it just kind of taste, everything else after that for a period of time tastes bitter. And some of you have bitterness because of the way you feel like God's treated you or the way your boss has treated you. Some of it, you, your bitterness could be justifiable yet it just taints everything, and Jesus can free you from that. You don't have to let sinful anger seethe in you where you lose your ever-loving mind, make a fool of yourself, blow up at your children, blow up at your spouse. You don't have to live like that. That's what Paul's saying. You don't have to do that. Well, tell me, Andy, how? How can I live free from that? Well, let's look at, as we close out, let's look at verses 11 through verses 14 of Romans 6. Because in a very practical way, that's what Paul gives to us is how can we overcome our sin? Most of us, we live like sin is inevitable, but Paul's actually saying the opposite. He's saying that conquering sin is very possible in our lives. And look, it starts with verse number 11. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And if you want, you can just kind of put, there are four commands that we're gonna look at here. Now, let me, you can put them down as four commands. That's fine, four commands. The first command is this, that you must consider, you must reckon, you must, that's what that word means. You must reckon, you must count on, you must put it into comp- compution. That's not a word. You must compute it. You must bank on it. You must consider it as a fact, in the same way that you may not have any money in the bank, and you may say to right your spouse or even yourself, like, "I really want to purchase this. I'm, I've been thinking about buying this new gun." and Then your spouse may say, Yeah, but we don't have any money. That's the fact. The fact is, you don't have any money. Doesn't matter what you desire. Doesn't matter what you want. It doesn't matter what you think. There's a fact out here. The fact, Jack, is you don't have any money, right? So don't buy it. It's real simple. In the same way, that's what Paul's saying. There's a fact out there. Doesn't matter what your flesh feels like. It doesn't matter what you desire. Here's a fact. The fact is this. Consider this fact. Reckon this fact. Bank on that's a good one. Bank on this fact that you have been, you have died to sin but you are now alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's the fact. You're dead to sin, you're alive to Christ Jesus. Notice this, that I said that there are four commands, but the starting point in fighting sin is not you doing something, but rather you believing something. Consider this, reckon this, think about this, compute this, bank on this. That's belief. That's not go out and do. We'll get to that. That's first, it starts with belief that the power that produces the victory for you to overcome your sin is nothing that you do. Think about the great salvations in scripture. I mean, there's some great stories of salvation in scripture. Think about, um, whenever the children of Israel march around the walls of Jericho. Do you remember that story? Remember that? I mean, that truth, it really happened. It's in the Bible. But do you remember that? Do you remember what the children of Israel were told to do? March around this thing, like march around this mug seven times and then blow a trumpet. How much power's exerted, right? Like force, physical force is exerted in marching around something seven times and then blowing a trumpet, you know? And then when they did it, the walls came tumbling down. Like that's not their power there's no power in marching around some people say well they you know made some seismic shift in the like blah look they were obedient to steps of faith and god produced a power that's what happened they were obedient to small seemingly inconsequential steps of faith and as they exerted their faith in god god provided the power Whenever the children of Israel, this is before that, whenever the children are down in Egypt and God delivers the children of Israel out of Egypt and they come up across the Red Sea and the the Egyptian army is behind them about to take them over and they're scared as you and I would be scared. And they go, Moses, what are we gonna do? And then God tells Moses, Moses, stick out your staff and watch me work. What he said, stick out your staff and behold the salvation of God. Small step of faith, Moses and a staff. That's not gonna get a lot of power in it. Certainly doesn't have enough power to part the Red Sea and to dry up the ground and allow them to cross. But Moses obeys and does a small step and the children of Israel, they just follow in along. God shows up and shows the power. And he's saying the same thing. It starts with you beholding the salvation of God that occurred on a cross 2000 years ago. Your victory over your real sin and the real whatever it is that you deal with, that you will deal with tomorrow, your victory over that thing starts with you considering and reckoning that you died on a cross when Jesus died on a cross. That when Jesus laid in the tomb that you and your sinful desires were put in that tomb with him. We just a few weeks ago, we had a, 19 people go through starting point. I mean, that's really exciting for us as a church. And so we had 19 people that are candidates now for membership and the next step will be, they'll be meeting with an elder. And in that meeting with an elder, we ask a set of questions. Those of you who've been through it or members, covenant members, you know, kind of the, the, what happens there. But one of the questions we'll ask them is, tell me your story. When did you become saved? And those of you that are getting ready for that, you can write this down, right? The th- correct theological answer when we say, when did you become saved would be, I got saved 2,000 years ago on a cross outside of the city of Jerusalem when they nailed Jesus there. That's when I got saved. That's when my flesh was, as Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ Jesus. And now I live in light of that crucifixion, that salvation. And that's what Paul's saying here. First, you must consider yourself, but not just consider yourself, you're consider yourself dead to sin. Consider yourself dead to sin but alive to Christ Jesus. Number two, let not, then he says, let not sin, therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't do that. That the presence of a passion towards sin does not mean you have to sin. It doesn't mean you are in sin, although some passionate are sin, but it doesn't mean you have to act out on that on that sin. Feelings of fear and feelings of worry and feelings of bitterness and feelings of anger do not mean that you have to continue in them, have to live in them, have to let them consume your every thought and your every action, or let them become sinful actions. You can fight your passions and you can cultivate new passions, that those passions are not the true you. The real passions, I get that. I feel them the same. I'm fallen the same as you are fallen. I have a flesh the same as you have a flesh. But the truth is those passions are not the true you. We live in a culture where whatever you feel, you just go with it because that's probably the true you. That's you just following your heart and it'll lead you to happiness. Like we won't do a show of hands, but let's just be honest. How many of our hearts have actually led us towards happiness? Gosh, my heart has led me towards all sorts of uncertainty. I do know that. Rarely has it led me to happiness. Those fallen passions are not the true you, the real you. And if you are a believer, you have a new you and a new nature and a new creation and the Holy Spirit is residing in you. So do not let sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Don't let it, don't let it have its rule you don't have to speak rudely. You don't have to continue with lustful thoughts. You don't have to let your mind go on and on and on in worry. He is giving you and filling you with a real power. If you will be obedient to the small inconsequential steps, like telling yourself to stop it. That's what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. There comes a time when you got to stop listening to yourself. The true art of, of godly living, he said, is this. Stop listening to yourself and you start speaking to yourself, start preaching to yourself. You have to declare that your lusts are dead. Even though you don't feel it, even though they feel that they're alive, you must tell yourself, I am dead to that. I feel alive, but I am not. By faith, I am not alive to that. That's number two. Number three, I think I told you I got seven, right? Just joking, just four, two more, stay with me. Number three, do not present your members, he says. Now, when he says members, he's meaning fingers, eyes, toes, mind, tongue, stomach. Don't present your taste buds. Don't present your members, your mouth, your lips, your voice. Don't present them as members, as instruments for unrighteousness. But do this. Number four, but present yourselves to God. Not as a flaming hot mess full of sin, but present yourself to God as a dependent and weak person, as those who have been brought from death, as someone who is dead but now alive, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. What he means here is just very simple. We don't have to let our mouths say something that is sharp and caustic or manipulative or deceitful or deceptive or rude. We don't have to use our eyes to download lustful material. We don't have to use our hands to steal. We don't have to use our stomach and our taste buds to foster gluttony. We don't have to let our minds dwell on bitterness and anger and pride, but we can tell our instruments not to do that. We can present our instruments, present our members to God as instruments of righteousness. We can take our eyes And instead of feeding upon lustful and broken images, we can use them to feed on beautiful images, images like God's word or like your family or like a friend across the table. You can use your mind to let it fill. Instead of being filled with anxious thoughts, you can fill your mind with beautiful thoughts, with true things, with honorable things, with just things, with pure things, with lovely things, with commendable things, with excellent things, with things worthy of praise, gratitude and on and on and on it goes. You don't have to sin is what he's saying here. You don't have to surrender. That's the word, surrender your members as instruments for unrighteousness, But you and you can, you really, really can with a real power because you are dead to sin, dead to sin's power, even feel so alive, you're dead to it. You can deliver it over to God, presenting yourself to God. And verse number 14 is the promise. Verse number 14, for sin will not have dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but you are under grace. The promise is this, that the law was powerless to thwart sin in our lives. In fact, for most of us, it only incited more and more sin. It only intensified our desires. You want to see me do something? Tell me I can't do it or don't do it, and you'll see me do it. The same thing is true. That's the work of the law. But you and I, we are not under the law, but we are under grace. And grace is a power. It is a powerful force. How powerful was it? Well, it defeated sin and it overcame Adam and it produced a new creation. It is so powerful that as Jesus hung on the cross, the very earth shook, rocks split open, a veil, a six to eight inch thick, veil was torn in two. The sun was blotted out. That's how powerful, that's how powerful Jesus is. That's how powerful his grace is. His grace is at work in you. Stand upon it. Consider it. Bank on it. Even though the passions may rage, bank on his promises. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that as we come to a place where we get to consider your death, where we remember your body broken for us and your bloodshed, the blood of a new covenant, as we remember that, that you would, by your power, your spirit, you would lead us to repent of our sin, to hate it. There are some people in the room who understand chronic sin, habitual giving in of the sin. Years and years and years of living with grieving the Holy Spirit. And they must think at this moment that it seems so powerless. I seem so weak and so powerless. So that's a good thing. Lord, I pray that today that they would be filled with new vigor to fight the fight of faith and to fight against their sin. I pray that today with this passage of scripture, they may be armed with new weapons to fight this battle new truths that be true in their hearts, new things to have gratitude of what, who you are, how you have saved us. And Lord, I pray that even as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, it will remind us of all of your promises, including that promise from Romans six 14, We're dead to sin, alive to you. I pray that in your name, amen.